everyone! Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Grappling with Popular Belief. Last month, I talked about the importance of connection and relationships, and this week I'm going to talk about the very beginning of all of our lives and how those early connections that we have affect the way we deal with emotions and relationships throughout our lives. Right away, I'd like to acknowledge one important fact here. I am not a parent, and today I am going to be talking about some parenting-related things, Uh, but I just want to point that out because I'm not here to give you some kind of parenting advice spiel or um, tell you how you should parent. I will never be on here to tell you how you should do something. I simply like to bring my lens to topics that I find important and interesting. So just like everything else, parenting is a thing where everyone's experience is a little different. Each individual parent is going to know their baby best, and I think that's important to remember when sorting out the chaos of all of the mixed messages and pressures everywhere about parenting. The first thing that I want to bring up here is one of the phrases that I've heard tossed around a lot about infants let them cry it out. When I think of this phrase, I think that it actually aligns very nicely with the overarching theme in our world in which we are told to be independent, self-sufficient warriors who carry everything on our own and never ask for help and don't share with others. I talked about this a lot last month and I think that a lot of the popular expressions that we hear do come from these values that are integrated into our society. We have come a long way with these ideas, but unfortunately, there's definitely still a lot of pressure to be independent and to not allow others to help us. Mental health and sharing your feelings still, much to my amazement, carries so much negative stigma. Even when I say mental health, I feel like that label carries such heavy baggage, and they're just words. So back to crying it out. Here are a few things that I think are important facets of attachment theory. Attachment theory focuses on the first two years of life, also known by psychologists and the like as early infancy. Before I go too deeply into this topic, I'm going to say where the bulk of this information comes from. My gathering of this knowledge has come through textbooks, work experiences, work trainings, and things like that. The two main pioneers of this topic are John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. John Bowlby's book, A Secure Base, dives deep into the subject of attachment. And attachment theory is about just that, having a secure base. Humans are unique in the animal world that we are born with a strong need for our caregiver to teach us how to function. Humans are emotional beings. We grapple with things like anxiety, issues with self-esteem, complicated responses to relationships. It may be crazy to imagine this, but where we start to learn how to manage all of these things is during these first two years of life. Having that secure base is crucial in developing the areas of the brain that help with navigating our emotional experiences. When a baby cries and the caregiver soothes them, it helps them learn how to soothe themselves. It may seem kind of weird, 
but we are not innately born with the ability to calm ourselves down. Although our brain has already gone through a ton of developing while we were in the womb, our infant brain is very reptilian still in that its primary focus is just to survive. Through interactions that we have with our caregivers, we figure out how to calm down, that things will be okay, and that we have the ability to calm ourselves down on our own. That sounds pretty simple, right? Show your baby how to calm down, they calm down, everyone's happy. If you're a parent, you're already shunning me and exclaiming that it's definitely not that simple. The first obvious thing to consider here is that we are all constructed differently. Things like our biological makeup and our environment impact the way that our emotional health develops. Everything is very intertwined and complex and no two people are the same. Going back to the letting the baby cry it out idea. If you are cursing me because I am implying that you shouldn't let your baby cry, take a deep breath, feel your feet against the ground, and keep listening. I definitely don't want to make it sound like I'm telling you not to let your baby cry and that you need to be there immediately at their whim every time they're distressed. When picking apart the intricacies of this theory, contesting the idea of letting babies cry it out, I think about the popular phrase, especially in counseling fields, meet them where they're at. So meet your baby where they're at. It may sound kind of silly, but think about a newborn baby. If they're just a few weeks old, then crying for 10 minutes can be a very long and stressful time. However, for a two-year-old, depending on their specific biological makeup, it may be less troubling. I suggest that it's a good idea to consider a baby's age and developmental point when considering how long they should be left alone to cry for. Crying is the child's way of communicating. Babies aren't doing much talking when they're first born. They're not going around saying, hey mom, I'm hungry. Instead, they cry. They aren't going around demanding cuddles when they feel scared or anxious. You, if you're a parent or primary caregiver, are the expert. You learn what your baby needs at certain times and certain parts of the day. Again, I think this sounds a little silly, but you kind of have to meet your baby where they're at. In addition to learning what your child is looking for, you can learn their threshold and yours. Which brings me to another important point. I have no idea how intense and chaotic life with a newborn is firsthand. I know that it must be very draining and quite the emotional roller coaster. What I encourage you to do for you and your baby is find ways to take care of yourself. I do want to acknowledge that it must be excruciatingly difficult to find the time or to find help so that you're able to do these things. Just remember that your baby is going to do best when you are doing best and when you are feeling good. Okay, so back to babies. It sounds like that could be a TV show series about infant police officers or something. Back to babies. Anyway. Sometimes people may worry about nurturing their children so much that they're never going to be able to do anything on their own. I totally understand that this is a valid worry. Parenting has a lot to do with creating humans who can do things for themselves, right? 
this is where I want you to revisit that original point about where the child is at developmentally. Young infants just don't have the skills yet to calm themselves down, so it's important to teach them. Maybe you start by letting them cry for a few minutes, and then a couple more, and then a couple more. (laughs) It's just not really fair to throw a young infant into the fire of emotional turmoil with no out for long periods of time. As children become older and need to have more independence in order to learn and to have a healthy development, people learn through modeling and prompting. And one of the best ways to help a child learn how to calm themselves down and have good coping skills is to model them yourself by helping yourself calm down with different strategies so that they can see that we can get through difficult stuff For a two-year-old that continues to struggle over and over again with sleeping on their own and you're spending a ton of time getting up and nurturing them and helping them fall back asleep, it might be a good idea to try some different strategies. Utilize calming methods. Favorite stuffed animals, a special blanket, music, a nightlight, reading. There's a bunch of different things you can try, and as you model these experiences for the kiddos, you are creating important learning experiences that will stay with them throughout their lives. As they get older and begin talking and able to communicate their needs better, you can even talk to them about what they need before bed or what would help them feel happiest or most comfortable. The last thing I want to touch on before I bring my friend on to talk about perinatal mental health is a situation that I think reinforces the idea of letting them cry it out. Sometimes, if you let a baby cry and cry and cry without responding to them, they will actually stop crying. Poof, it worked, right? How easy is that? (laughs) Not so simple. We are adaptive beings, and what happens here is that sometimes babies will learn that crying is not the right way to get their needs met. So that may sound like it's kind of a good thing, right? That they're not just crying to get their needs met. But like we said before, babies don't really have other ways of communicating that they need something. So learning that their only means of communication is not going to bring them the caregiver that they need to help them feel safe and calm, it can have some damaging long-term effects to their self-esteem and their ability to build strong relationships. Okay, that's enough of my babbling for now. I am going to welcome Sam to answer some questions and talk to us a little bit about perinatal mental health. Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining me on my podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Alyssa. So Sam is here with me to talk a little bit about perinatal mental health, but um, I think first maybe Sam talk a little bit about how we know each other. Uh, sure. So yeah, if if my memory uh, serves correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of these um, bits, but um, we went to high school together and we had a lot of common friends. We became friends in high school. Um, and then sort of, we were pretty close back then, but we drifted kind of in our, well, I'd say early 20s until 
you were working on an inpatient psychiatric unit and I was an intern on that same inpatient psychiatric unit and we sort of reconnected and we've sort of been talking ever since, I think, right? That's pretty much how it goes. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I remember being like very surprised. I was like, oh, that's our new intern. Hey, Sam. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a surprise for me too. I feel like I knew, maybe I knew you worked there, but I wasn't 100% sure in what capacity. Um, but, but yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting surprise <laughs> for sure. So what is perinatal mental health? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Perinatal mental health, uh, how I would describe it, would be the care of the mental health of mothers uh, from the point of conception through pregnancy and into parenthood, and also the care of their partners, their family members, and anyone who's sort of directly involved in the process. The term itself, perinatal, comes from kind of Greek and Latin roots, meaning around the time of giving birth. So it encompasses mental health care for mothers, fathers, family members, anyone kind of expecting a baby and in the period thereafter uh, giving birth. We typically think of postpartum depression um, as the most commonly thought of perinatal mental health issue, but it's certainly not the only type. Basically, if somebody's mental health is impacted by a, a pregnancy by giving birth, it's likely a perinatal mental health issue. Gotcha. Very cool. I actually, I don't think I really heard too much about perinatal mental health through all of my training and grad school and everything, which is surprising because I did do a lot of, um, a lot of coursework around human development and especially like children's mental health. And uh, I've worked with child protective services and places like that, where we focused a lot of our trainings on, you know, early life. Yeah. And so that, that begs the question kind of, is there more is there a need for kind of more information um, for people to be talking about this more and, and I think the answer is yes I think stigma of course is a huge issue also we have this sort of strange in the in the therapy world we always look at diagnoses we can treat um, based on the DSM right our our DSM manual our big book of of diagnoses but perinatal mental health disorders are not laid out in a particularly helpful way um, in the DSM. Typically they are listed as it's a specifier. So there's usually a specifier for perinatal onset. So that would lead one to assume that that's just a timing thing. But the reality is there's unique dynamics that comes with, that come with treating the perinatal population, even if their diagnosis is major depression with perinatal onset. Treating that, which is sort of postpartum depression or perinatal depression, is a different sort of beast than treating major depression. That's not to say, though, that many of the interventions that you would have learned to treat major depression wouldn't be um, applicable in those situations. One of the reasons I find it very important to define and use the term perinatal rather than postpartum is because a lot of these issues, these mental health challenges that people face, don't just occur after giving birth. They can actually occur um, right from pregnancy all the way up through giving birth and into early motherhood. So it's not just postpartum mental health. It is perinatal mental health encompassing that whole time period. I hear you. That makes sense. Talk a bit about um, your education and about how you got into perinatal mental health. Sure. So um, I'm trained as a, a licensed mental health counselor here in uh, Massachusetts, which um, that title 
has various names in various locations. Um, but basically what we're talking about is a, uh, a licensed therapist. So I, I studied my, got my master's degree in counseling, just like um, all other LMHCs and started working um, with adults. And as I was working with adults with um, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, substance use, trauma histories, inevitably a certain percentage of adults become pregnant or have a, have a partner who's pregnant. And um, I found that that work was really, uh, was, was interesting. I didn't know a whole lot about working with the pregnant perinatal population at that time. But what I found was that a lot of the things that I'd learned in uh, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy in treating, particularly in treating OCD, mood disorders and anxiety disorders actually was relatively applicable to the perinatal population. So I studied more and more and, and took an interest in it as a, as a subject area and as a, a clinical interest. And I became certified as a perinatal mental health professional through Postpartum Support International. Um, I'm also trained in a really cool modality called the Newborn Behavioral Observation, which was developed um, at the Brazelton Institute, which is part of Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And that's a really neat intervention we utilize for um, parents of a newborn under three months um, and understanding how they interact, their competencies, and how they communicate. Um, which you would think newborns under three months communicating, what? Um, but there's actually a lot of communication going on at that point developmentally, and it can be a really powerful uh, thing to observe and reflect upon. Um, so the, that's some of the training formally that I've had. And, and a lot of my training, of course, came from just working um, with moms and families um, and their kids. And I don't consider myself an expert so much as a, uh, a person who's very interested in this sort of work and uh, enjoys it. Very cool. I think it's really awesome because I feel like men are very underrepresented in our field in general, like working as therapists or working as helping professionals. And for you to take on this specific population, I think is just cool. I, I admire it. Well, thank you. Um, well, you're right. I mean, we are, there, there's not a ton of male perinatal mental health providers, which is interesting because, you know, some of the other specialties that the population will seek out, such as OBGYNs or pediatricians, not necessarily the same lack of male providers in, in that regard. But in terms of perinatal mental health, yes, there, there's, there's not as many male providers as we'd like. There's sort of a, a, a joke. It's sort of a running joke at this point, but um, when I end up going to some of these trainings, I'll show up and, and, and walk in the door and I'll be, you know, however many people there are. And uh, I'll get up to sign in and I say, Oh, you must be Samuel. And uh, yeah, that's me. I'm the one guy who signed up for this. Um, <laughs> that's great. What, what do you think are the most important things that you've learned about um, when you've been studying perinatal mental health? Well, I think um, some of the data on what exactly, well, the data and, and generally just the understanding of 
what perinatal mental health conditions um, look like uh, is pretty important because I think a lot of times we hear the term postpartum depression and we are immediately conjured up these sort of sensationalized news stories or we hear, we think, we imagine moms not being able to take care of their kids and, and that's simply not true. The prevalence of perinatal mental health issues is extremely high. And I don't say that to scare people. I say that to sort of destigmatize it a little bit because in just about every case, perinatal mental health issues are things that moms can work on and treat and get better. A perinatal mental health diagnosis is, is common, it's treatable, and depending on what it is, will we'll dictate the, the sort of interventions we might use. But um, when, we, when we look at the population of, of, let's say, new moms, roughly 80% of new moms will have baby blues, which is sort of a normal reaction to just the hormonal changes that happen during pregnancy. And after giving birth, they have sort of baby blues, which is can be just sort of a, a little bit like depression or you know, kind of look a little bit like that for a short period of time. But that's, so that's virtually everybody gets that. And again, very normal. But when we look at perinatal mental health issues, like kind of beyond that, we're looking more at, at like postpartum depression or perinatal depression, postpartum anxiety, perinatal anxiety, postpartum PTSD, perinatal OCD, all of the above. You know, where prevalence goes to around at least one in five moms will experience some sort of perinatal mental illness beyond um, baby blues. And then um, we can also look at dads, which is an interesting statistic that 10% of dads also experience a perinatal mental health issue. So we're talking about some pretty common stuff. And when we think about some of the more scary things like... uh, like I was mentioning before, the sort of newsworthy items about moms having perinatal psychosis is typically what it is. They sometimes use the term postpartum depression, but what what they're really experiencing is perinatal psychosis. Um, That's pretty rare. So we're talking about between one and two out of a thousand. But with that said, those conditions are also very treatable and um, are usually pretty time limited. So as long as screening is done effectively, there's no reason that any of the above from baby blues, which are just something that people will adjust to, to postpartum depression, perinatal anxiety, perinatal OCD, which people will benefit from therapy, sometimes medication, all the way up through perinatal psychosis, they're all treatable and they're all very much probably more common than people realize with the exception of perinatal psychosis, which is pretty rare. Gotcha. So what are some things, so some of my listeners may be in the uh, perinatal stage, or maybe they are thinking about that, or at some point in the future, some point in the past, they may be in that stage. What What are some things that you would want to tell them? Well, um, I would want to tell them to not measure themselves against other people. I think that's really important, mm-hmm. especially people in social media, regular media, celebrities, even friends, family. When we look at our friends and our family's social media profiles or their, um, the TV, if we watch TV and we see celebrities who are pregnant, who are given birth, what they're experiencing, we're seeing a sort of curated version of that experience. We get unrealistic expectations and that can be sort of an unhelpful measuring stick 
for new moms and or new parents. People don't go on social media typically and post about the kind of downs of being pregnant. They don't talk. They don't talk about some of the more nitty gritty elements of giving birth or being pregnant or early parenthood. So measuring yourself against sort of social media, the the media in general, don't do it. Don't. There's no need to compare yourself to anybody else. Your experience as a as an expecting mom as a expecting dad is unique. Um, everybody's experience is unique. And it's really important that you give yourself kind of the permission to have a unique experience. And it's never perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect pregnancy or a perfect delivery or perfect parent for that matter. I would also encourage people to reach out, you know, people who are struggling to reach out, whether it be to your doctors, to mental health providers, let them know. Uh, I think people have this fear that Letting somebody know about a perinatal mental health issue. You mentioned working for social services. They, they have this fear that they bring that up, that somehow um, that's going to involve social services. But more than likely, it's going to involve screening and, and bringing in some additional services, such as services of somebody like me, who's a, a therapist trained to work with people who are experiencing perinatal mental health issues. So definitely talk to your providers. If they suggest seeing a therapist, see a therapist. Psychotherapy alone is very effective at helping with perinatal mental health issues. There's support groups. There's kind of peer-led support groups. There's also support groups run by therapists. And in many cases, so when somebody is experiencing a perinatal mood disorder, there are medications that are helpful for that. Medications aren't exactly my wheelhouse. I'm not a doctor. But what I will say is this. um, There is something of a false understanding of how medications work or what medication should and shouldn't do in the case of um, perinatal mental health. There's a lot of safe medications that can be used for treating mood disorders in the perinatal context. We often think of this idea of either I expose my child to psychiatric medication, which could be a big mistake, or I don't. That's not really accurate. For one, majority of the psychiatric medications that are prescribed by prescribers who work with the perinatal population have little to no uh, side effects for the for the fetus but number two the actual comparison we're looking at is do we want to expose a fetus to a psychiatric medication we want to expose them to untreated mental illness and what we know is that when we expose them to untreated mental illness then we worry about serious birth effects. So get help. That's, I guess, the number one thing I would take away from all this is if you're struggling during the perinatal window, get help. There's always help. So some of the the ways you can get help, um, apart from talking to your own doctors, um, is you can can go to Postpartum Support International at postpartum.net. There's a 24-hour hotline you can call at 800-944-4773. And there's also a directory on the website that I just mentioned, postpartum.net that has a big list of mental health providers who specialize in this kind of work. So I would definitely encourage you to reach out. Wow, that's awesome, Sam. Thanks for that information. I think that's so important, especially uh, in regards to comparing ourselves to others. I think that's always an important thing to remember that we have to step away from those ideals that are in the media and social media and all that. And I'm sure for 
someone who is pregnant or trying to get pregnant, it's even more important for them to be aware of that. Absolutely. And I think it's real, it's really easy to get stuck in going down a Google rabbit hole, um, looking up things like uh, I'm experiencing this. Is anyone else experiencing this? What does this mean? You know, it's okay to use the internet. It's okay to socially uh, network with people and, for the, whether it's for support groups or for just finding people who are also going through the same things you are, that's great. But remember that there can be too many cooks in the kitchen. And when it comes to getting medical advice about what you're dealing with, stick with the doctors you trust, stick with the providers you trust. Um, Dr. Google, we know about Dr. Google and how effective or ineffective that can be. Um, and chances are for a mom who's experiencing some anxiety during pregnancy, Dr. Google is going to be not so helpful. Right. Probably make the situation worse, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, he, he will or she will. <laughs> um, another really important thing I've learned in perinatal mental health that I think is important for people to understand is that screening in perinatal mental health is very important. And I don't just mean screening in the context of an OBGYN's office or a primary care provider, because anybody can do a screening, right? Anybody can provide a screening tool, but you also need to have a plan with what to do with it. So if a person scores really high on one of these screening tools, what's the follow-up going to be? And the reason for that is because if we screen somebody for, let's say, perinatal depression and they screen really high, what are we going to do with that? We should have a plan like to um, talk to the therapist, to talk to a social worker, to join a support group, et cetera. So that screening is really important. It's also really important because it differentiates between two sort of uh, fears or two sort of extremes that, that people often get confused. So it's actually very common in pregnancy, in early parenthood, for moms to experience what we would call harm thoughts that are egodystonic or not aligning with one's views, wants. And those egodystonic harm thoughts they sort of occur and they tend to be accompanied by a spike of anxiety and they're not indicative of somebody wanting to act on an urge. They're very different than that and they're very common. So there's a big difference between having an intrusive thought that you want to get out of your head versus having a thought or an urge to harm. The latter sometimes we can see in a perinatal psychotic episode, but not common. I mean, like I said, we're talking one and two and a thousand, but um, those intrusive thoughts that, that, frankly, a lot of people will have during the perinatal window are very common and very treatable, but they're not indicative of action. They're not indicative that somebody's having a thought and therefore they're going to act on the thought. If anything, it means they need to reach out to help take so they can take care of themselves so their anxiety can be a little bit less so that they can feel like there's no barrier between them and attachment with their child. So I think um, that's a very important differentiation to make. And it's a reason why screening should be really robust and all screening should be done with a plan for follow-up. That's really good information. Well, awesome, Sam. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. And um, you know, you have some really great knowledge in this area and uh, it was just awesome having you today. So thank you. Thank you. And as always, a big thank you to my listeners for the support and for the interaction and engagement that I get from you all. I hope that you enjoyed this month's episode. I know that there's a lot of information. There's a ton that we didn't even go into. So if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to me. 
Sam or I can come on and answer your questions and provide more information if that's something you're interested in. Remember to subscribe to my podcast, either on Apple Podcasts or Amazon or Podbean, and follow me on Instagram at Grappling with Popular Belief. And just to give you a little preview into next month's episode, I will let you know that I will be talking about whether or not we should be talking to children about mental health. So if you have any strong thoughts or feelings on this idea, especially if you're a parent, please reach out to me and let me know your thoughts so that I can integrate that into the episode. All right, everyone, I'll talk to you next time. Stay safe.